here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. and welcome back to Wrestling Omakase. It is episode number 106, and we are back from our brief one-week hiatus to return to the G1 Climax, and I'm very happy to be joined by a returning guest. Hello, Hannah. Hello there. How's Lovely to be on. Uh, I'm doing very good. I actually am very excited to be back in the swing of this because uh, I kind of stopped watching wrestling for a good while. After uh, Hiromu got injured last year, I kind of went on a tour of trying to, you know, pick up the best stuff from uh, promotions that I hadn't been watching as much. So I watched a bunch of Masashi Takeda matches. Um, I got to see what LA Park is all about. Um, But then I just, you know, kind of quit cold turkey and just now came back for the G1. So uh, it's been a very interesting perspective, like coming back in on it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I feel like those kind of, like, breaks are, I think everybody goes through that, you know? I know I did, like, around 2011 would have been, like, the time when I watched the least amount of wrestling. Yeah. But but I think it's those are healthy breaks for it, especially when you're as into this as, you know, I think you and I are and probably most of our listeners, you know, those kind of breaks to give you, like, a fresh perspective I think can be pretty important. Yeah, it it does mean that I'm able to enjoy parts of this G1 um, without, like, already being sick of some of it. Um, Although, like, as as we'll see in uh, how I end up rating some of this stuff, my biases are very much in play. And stuff that I was sick of before I stopped watching is stuff that I'm still sick of. So it's going to be cool to see that. Um, but yeah, so we're here catching up basically with a bunch of nights of the G1. Um, as I mentioned, we were off last week. I was at Otakon in DC, which was Hell a fun was time. It was a fun time. I always, I, 
I'd never really have a bad Otakon, so I can't really say it was bad. I wouldn't put it as like a top tier Otakon either. It was probably just middle tier, but I had a good time. Um, still getting used to the new DC digs. Have you ever been to Otakon, Hannah, or no? I forget. Oh no, sorry. I've uh, the only anime con that I've been to was one anime Boston around like I want to say eight years ago or so. We were probably um, we were probably in the same place then because I've been to like I, I definitely would have been to anime Boston. So yeah, that's kind of cool. But yeah, yeah, I cosplayed as Hazama from uh, Blaze Blue Calamity Trigger, and it was a very fun time. And then I just never went to any more anime convention. <laughs> but yeah, this was like my. I, my second straight Otakon in D.C. since they moved in Baltimore. I missed the first one in 2017 when they moved because I was in a, I was in Japan at the time, actually. So this is, you know, it's still getting used to D.C. I think I like it more in the second year than I did in the first year where it was just such like a, like a shock moving from Baltimore to D.C., like just a completely different area. Uh, I still don't, the surrounding area is still like, I don't know. I mean, people who know D.C., it's very, it's like downtown DC, so it's very like you know sterile. I guess mm-hmm. is the best word. So, you know, there's the, I don't I don't like the area as much, but yeah. like convention center itself is nice. It's a city it's where you're issued a lanyard the moment you walk into city limits. Yeah, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it, the convention was fun. Had a good time hosting the New Japan panel. I hope people enjoyed it if they went. I know that we had, we had at least one listener there, which is really cool. So awesome. I, I hope if you, um, you know, if you went, you enjoyed the panel. Um, but yeah, so that's pretty much Otakon. But that means we have a lot of shows to catch up on here. Basically seven shows all the way through from the July 24th show in Hiroshima all the way through today. So we're going to start out with that show, July 24th. Hiroshima Sun Plaza Hall. Uh, the first G1 match was Juice Robinson defeating Toriano in 428 with the Pulp Friction that moved Juice to 3-1 and one and dropped Yano to 2-2. Two and two. Now, I know as our most, uh, probably the, the person highest on these Yano matches of anyone I know, what do you think of this one? I don't think I'm actually the highest on you. Because uh, oh. I, when I recently... Uh, I think I was replying to a WrestleSplania tweet asking like, hey, I haven't had time to watch G1 stuff. You know, what are some good matches for me to catch up on? And I kind of like listed my five uh, favorite wrestlers of the tournament so far. And I got a couple of responses just be like, where's Yano? Where's Yano? So (laughs) there's people who are even more in love with Yano's performances than I am. Um, But I did like this match. I thought that um, it was one of his strongest ones from the first half at a tournament or so. Um, I generally wasn't feeling Yano quite as much as I did last year, but I loved this uh, in large part because I think Juice plays really well off against Yano. Juice is somebody who wrestles really dumb a lot of the time. Like, you know, he was very open about like uh, that famous promo that he had where he was like, oh, you got smarts, but I got uh, heart and I got nuts, right? So he is not somebody who wrestles crafty, but to see him get that invested in outsmarting the Sublime Master Thief was a really fun time. Yeah, I think this I, this probably was my favorite Yano match so far, too. I thought like all the stuff with the 
exposed turnbuckle, like really set it up to the point where I thought Yano was actually going to win. So that always helps. Like he, it just felt like a match where Yano could have won, but yeah. he just kind of like pulled it out in the end. Um, and like you said, Juice is like a great straight man, you know, like really just, he like took the handshake at one point, which is like almost like you almost deserve to lose for being that stupid to take Absolutely. the but he just at one point like there, there's a great photo on the New Japan website of like Yano going for the low blow and Juice looking at him like very angrily and sternly like what are you even doing now? So he just great. He's just great like playing off of Yano there. Yeah, yeah I went three and a, three and a quarter. I enjoyed it. Uh, three and three quarters for me, and uh, I think that you know Juice is somebody who I've been very much enjoying this tournament, and I I feel like. He has just been so much uh, better positioned this year than last year, where every single match was just a storyline of like, oh, he's injured, he can't do shit, he's not gonna win. Um, but here, they've actually allowed him to have like his own style and his own identity as a wrestler, not just as an injury. So I've been very much enjoying this year's juice. Match number two, the. Uh, Taichi defeating Hiroki Goto in 12-11 with the Taichi-style Gato Clutch. Uh, moves him to 2-2 two and two and drops Goto to 1-3 at this point. This one I didn't really enjoy. Um, you know, I've, I thought their matches last year were better than people gave it credit for, but like this was the one where I'm like, well, I can kind of understand where people are coming from. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I think people, a lot of people are going to blame any underwhelming match on Tai Chi because that's how people are with Tai Chi. But mm-hmm. I really don't think Goto's had a great tournament. And this was another one where I was like, uh, I don't know what Goto's doing here. Yeah. I mean, there was a there was a long period where it felt like he was like barely selling for Tai Chi's control period and then just like hit a very weak lariat at the end of it, which just made sure the entire thing came off super flat. Um but yeah, I mean like it picked up a little bit after that, but you know, he just like then Goto just kind of gets hit in the deck and pinned, which kind of sums up his G one, I think, like holding his <laughs> holding his crotch in pain on the on the ground. But yeah, I only went three stars on it. I thought there was some good action towards the end that sort of saved it, but I really can't imagine going above that. Yeah, so I'm a hundred percent with you on this being more Goto's fault than Taichi's fault, um, and in general on Taichi having a better tournament and. Honestly, being a better wrestler than Goto, um, I think that I was really disappointed by this match. I was expecting this to be one of the Goto ones that I like because I think what turns me off from him so much at the time is that he has this persona where he's this very sort of like proud, spirited warrior who's you know gonna hit you with these stiff strikes and have a lot of fighting spirit, but. Um, it always just feels like it's half effort unless he's against somebody who really pisses him off. Then he can be fantastic. Um, But that didn't happen this match. And I could have sworn that it was going to, given that, you know, Tai Chi is such a weaselly little shit, but they really leaned more into the striker Tai Chi than the weaselly little shit Tai Chi in this match. And I don't think that was the best decision. If there's one thing I can fault Tai Chi for in the construction of this match, it is that. Um, Because like you said, Goto just wasn't selling for anything. He wasn't really reacting to much of anything. And just kind of felt autopilot. Whereas, you know, you can have 
such a fun and memorable match with somebody as unique and goofy of a character as Tai Chi. Yeah, I it agree. Was two and a quarter for me, so even oh, wow. lower than you. Yeah. I mean, it didn't even it. It just didn't feel like it played into Tai Chi's strengths at all. It just felt like I don't know. Goto's wrestled a lot yeah. of very samey, very samey matches in this tournament. I think so. Yeah. Tai Chi can have um, really good brawls, but this wasn't it. Yeah. Uh, the third match, John Moxley defeating Shingo Takagi in fourteen forty-five at the Texas Clover Relief. It moved Moxley to four zero, dropped Shingo to two and two. Um, so I thought that the start of this was awesome, where in, up until there was like a weird like dive to the floor, where I guess Shingo was supposed to catch him, but Moxley was like too short. You know, like he just didn't quite make it. But they yeah. almost made up for that immediately with that like really sick Death Valley driver on the floor. So I can kind of overlook that, even though obviously I'm still going to take that as a flaw. Um, there was like the legwork stuff I thought was really good. Shingo is like an underrated seller, and I thought he really got to show it here. Um, and then this is like also where I really like realized that Moxley was like a Japanese tape guy. Like this is a guy who's watched a lot of mid '90s all Japan tapes because he did that like German no-sell lariat spot exactly like he was doing like a Misawa cosplay. It was very, just very amusing to watch. And like, I don't know. I think people had the wrong, not the wrong idea about him, but I don't know if you told me like three years ago, you're like, was Dean Ambrose watching a lot of mid nineties, all Japan. I probably said, I don't know, maybe not, but apparently, apparently he was because he can tell he's just enjoying getting to do all that stuff. Um, the only, again, the big flaw I took off the end for was, you know, there was a spot at the end where they called, they basically called a spot right in the middle of the big finishing stretch. And mm-hmm. he did it really obviously. Like he, they didn't like grab a headlock or even like do it in the corner. He just kind of like leaned down and just called his spot, which was really bad and just took me out of the, the finishing stretch completely. Um, but with all that, I still had to give it four and a quarter because. I thought it was a really awesome match. The leg work paid off with the clover leaf finish. Yeah. Um, but there were just enough big flaws that I couldn't go high, higher than four and a quarter. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, you're absolutely right about the the joy of discovering Kings Road Moxley. And uh, <laughs> I have been just completely surprised by him this tournament. Me too. I, yeah. In the matches, like before the ones that we're covering, I was very much like, mm, yeah, maybe he kind of sucks. Maybe it's just that like I have still shield nostalgia that was clouding me, but you know, it wasn't WWE that was like holding him back. But I think that when he plays to his strengths, he is as good as anyone in this tournament. He has some glaring weaknesses. He uh, can't punch, he can't dive, and he can't run. And those are like three of the basic things that you do in a wrestling match. So, like, yeah, I did take off, you know, some some points for that really bad-looking dive, which, you know, is his worst one of the tournament, but let's be honest, they all suck. But um, I love how much he's just willing to get into these, like, King's Road-type brawls. And also, like, I can't think of another New Japan match in uh, the last couple years where this type of limb work has really paid off as clearly and cohesively as it did here. Um, So much of the time you just, you know, see people 
kind of marking off time for 10, 15 minutes with limb work. And then it's like, well, we want to have the same really hype finishing sequence that we have every time. So let's just kind of table that. Um, but this time it worked out really well, right? Because um, if I recall, didn't Shingo kick out of a Death Rider? Yeah, I believe the, the, he has like a, he's like Naito where he has like a Death Rider and like a mini Death Rider, which is like yeah. the, the leaping one. I think he kicked out of the leaping one. Yeah, but I thought it was great for him to just say, like, okay, well, instead of just hitting you with, like, the full Death Rider at that time, like, I'm going to uh, have the legwork that I've been doing all match pay off. And it's such a basic structural thing, but New Japan just falls down on that hurdle so often, right? And, you know, in the service of really fun, really cool matches, but it's so cool to see something paid off in a way that it's so often ignored. Uh, it yeah. was three and three quarters for me. I think that I was a little more taken out of it by that really bad dive, but still a very fun match. I totally agree. Um, and I think like if it wasn't for that that, that spot call at the, at the end, I think I would have gone even higher. Yeah. But um, after that, we got Jeff Cobb and Jay White. Uh, Jay White defeated Cobb in fifteen fifty with the Blade Runner. That got him his first one of the tournament at this point. So he's one and three, and Cobb fell to one and three. Um, I tried to be nice here. I went, I gave it three in hindsight. Mm. When I look back at, when I look back at my notes, I'm not even sure why I gave it three stars. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know. I, I guess I liked parts of it down the stretch after it was like very boring early, but then they got into that reversal, like overkill, which has been one of Jay White's big problems here. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Cobb at that point, like he just looked WWE baby face levels of stupid, like tossing Gato back in the ring and like, slowly stalking him for like an hour until Jay White attacked him from behind. So yeah, I, I, I was generous and gave it three stars, but I probably doesn't even deserve that. It wasn't very good. Yeah, it was a, a star and three quarters for me. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, these are both guys who are super matchup dependent. Um, Jay White has had a really amazing match or two this tournament, but left to his own devices. He has no idea how to structure a match. Um, And Cobb is somebody who, again, has cool spots, but really needs someone to hold his hand because he has no idea how to, like, make those matter, how to string them together, and how not to just, like, uh, devolve into his worst tendencies. Um, So when you put them together, uh, it just ends up with... uh, We're going straight from an endless heat section into uh, a finishing sequence that, you know, is one of those like really embarrassing finisher counter waltzes. Um, And that's just one of the worst combinations you can have. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not good. (laughs) The best thing I can say is not good. Uh, But speaking of stuff that is good, the main event, Tetsuya Naito defeating Tomohiro Ishii in 1858 with the Destino that moves Naito up to 2-2, two and two, drops Ishii down to 2-2. Two and two. Um, This was fucking awesome. I mean, look, it's Naito and Ishii. I think it's pretty much... It's I don't know if they ever had a bad match. I was trying to think of this, like what's their what's the lowest they've ever rated one of their matches. I think I might have gone four and a quarter once. And that might be the, the lowest. I mean, if... They have a match that, like, is probably as important to me 
being like a solid New Japan fan, like that watches every show as anything, which is uh, the Never Title match they had on the new, I think, New Beginning. It was the one right after Naito lost to Okada in 2014. Like that's a match that like cemented me as someone who's going to watch New Japan all the time and be like a New Japan fan. So this yeah. is like, a very important feud to me personally, and I think they really came through here. Um, you know, not to be clear, not that I have watched New Japan before that, but it was like a match that made me consider myself someone that's going to watch every single New Japan show. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, this is a really, really awesome match. Um, you know, it just like, I feel like they could have an awesome match in their sleep, you know, and they, but this is like a level above that. I, I heard some people say that critique that like it felt like, just a generic Naito Ishii match. I don't really agree. I think it felt a level above some of the other matches they've had. Um, you know, they, they, there was a great... The thing that I really loved about the match is there was like a change-up to the pace. Like, they lulled you into a false sense of what the match page was going to be, and they, like, suddenly exploded with, like, a super-fast exchange and then just, like, went really, really quick for the rest of the match. Um, the crowd somehow, like, I, I think also elevated the match where, like, they had been pretty dead for the rest of the rest of this card honestly but they really came alive here and you know obviously have to give a lot of credit to the two guys in the ring for that especially with you know how slow the crowd was before that um but yeah i mean like i thought this was uh four and three quarters it was my match of the tournament uh up until this point but Mm -hmm. just absolutely incredible battle between two of the best in the world yeah same here. Uh, also, four and three quarters. Also, my match of the tournament up until that point. Um, and I'm, you know, mostly just want to echo the stuff you said. And I think that a lot of why I could watch these two wrestle time and time again, whereas a lot of these other kind of, you know, stock matches lose their luster, is that they still feel like they're as pissed off at each other as the first time they wrestled, you know? Like, Ishii is somebody who is, again, a great wrestler all the time, but he is elevated when you can feel that sort of personal animus coming off from him and just, you know, putting a little extra on every strike, um, kind of working the pace up a little faster. Uh, And Naito is somebody who is, again, perfectly calibrated to piss people like that off. So I love their chemistry. I love how, like you said, they can always kick it into another gear and uh, just suddenly be, you know, doing a sprint while still having several minutes left in the match. And they're just a joy to watch together. Yeah. I mean, like they, they are like a yin and a yang, you know, like they are just two such like opposing personalities. And they were always like that even when before Naito was, uh, you know, LIJ, like before he turned, even back then it was just like, you know, Naito was sort of this, like, I don't want to say pretty boy, even though he is a very pretty boy, but like he was a, you know, like a clean cut, like kind of like, you know, I'm the next top star kind of guy. And Ishii was like, well, I'm this fucking grumpy veteran that knows I'm never going to get the same opportunities as you, but you know, the crowd, you know, loves me more, honestly. And, you know, so they had that very, uh, like, opposite personalities. And then Naito goes and joins, you know, Los Ingobernables and completely changes his personality, but still has a very opposite personality to Ishii because now he's like, well, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm, you know, Tranquilo. And Ishii is, you know, obviously 
not drink Hilo at all. So, yeah. you know, it works. It, it, it's like the one Naito feud that I think works just as well as it did pre and post LIJ. Whereas like the other feuds, you know, they have different dynamics to them. I think like tr- they've really had a hard time finding the Naito Okada dynamic post LIJ versus pre LIJ. Like those, those are two very different dynamics. Whereas Absolutely. the Naito Ishii dynamic is still very similar. Yeah. And I love that sense of like that, that personal story between the two with, you know, Naito very much having a chip on his shoulder regarding, you know, how he was treated when he was in the main event and Ishii just getting even more pissed off at him in the sense of like, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't have a good crowd reception when you got all these main event opportunities. <laughs> you little yeah. prick. I know. It, it just works so well. But yeah, overall, a I would call that a good show, not like a blow away or anything, but very, like in my upper upper half for sure. Like I went, it, the average star rating for that was about 3.65. Uh, the the main event being so good and Cobb, uh, not Cobb, I'm sorry, Moxley yeah. and Shingo being really good as well, both kind of elevate that show, even though the other three matches really weren't anything special. Uh, John, as a fellow stats dork, I hate to betray you here. I have not calculated the average star ratings for each night, so mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be on your own delivering those after every That's show, fun. but... Yeah, it was a good show. Uh, one amazing match, two really good ones, and two really shitty matches. But I would rather have you know those highs and lows than you know everything kind of just being in the middle. I agree. So that's actually a good transition though to Night Nine Nagoya, where it kind of did feel like a lot of middling stuff. Although I mean, there were two two matches I had at four, which is probably unfair to call middling on any objective scale. It's just. We've gotten a little swirl on the G1, you know, this year with stuff being better. So let's get into it. July 27th, the Aichi Perfectual Gymnasium in Nagoya, the first of two straight nights. Um, it began with Kota Ibushi and Lance Archer, Kota defeating him in 11:42 with the Kamigoe to go to three and two. It dropped Archer to two and three. Um, I thought this was like a really fun sprint. I went four stars on it. Um, you know, there was just a really not not a ton to say about it, I guess, and that it just kind of was like all action. You know, Archer. You know, you he, he's obviously been very good at keeping up with people like Abushi in this tournament. He's been he's a lot faster than I think people even expected going in, so that certainly helped him a lot here. Um, there was like a really cool spot, the one that stands out to me, where where Archer caught Abushi and went for the blackout, but like. I can't tell what Ibushi was actually going for when he ran in. It almost looked like he was going for a running Destino, which I just kind of wanted to see him hit like a running Destino now. And a match has nothing to do with Naito. It's just kind of cool. But yeah, four stars for me. Really enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, this was less good for me. Um, i not a huge fan of Archer's tournament um, in that like, I think a big part of it for me is just that like one of these things that I'm sick of at this point is uh, super heavyweights who are obsessed with moving like cruiserweights. And there are so many little things that uh, Archer does where it's like, but you're good at being a hoss. You're good at just ragdolling people around a ring. You know, why do I have to see a kind of slow and uh, long to set up uh, sent on to the outside. What do I have to see, you know, your really long old school routine. Um, and I think that he, when he's with somebody who's really fast, like Coda, 
he tries his best to keep up in that way. And I would much rather just see him be a big man who moves well and who can kind of catch you, counter you, toss you across the ring, plant you into the floor with a choke slam. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've been warming up on him throughout the tournament. And I think that this wasn't his worst match uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But it didn't end up at three stars for me, uh, just because I think there was a little too much of that sense of uh, Lance trying to prove he can move like a cruiserweight. Mm. I, I feel you. I mean, I've, I think I enjoyed him more than you have, but I understand that, you know, it's yeah. not going to be everybody's thing. Um, so that brings us to Will Ospreay and Bad Luck Fale. Why don't you go first on this one? Because I'm assuming you disliked it more than I did. Listen, uh, this, I think, is my lowest rated match at a tournament. Uh, it is. <laughs> um, and it was, if I recall, just a lot of very boring Fale beatdowns who is also somebody who I would like to see ragdolling people around a ring, but he doesn't even do that. He just has a bunch of, you know, kind of weak looking strikes for somebody of his size. He stands on people and he has two spots, right? Um, And it's such a shame because like, I think that right now, especially being kind of tired of those, uh, you know, super heavyweights who are obsessed with speed and agility, I'm in the exact right place to appreciate a super heavyweight who just wants to throw people around. But Fale doesn't even really give you that. And this was a match where that type of nothing offense was in full effect. And then, you know, Osprey hit one Os cutter, which never looks good. And Fale is not the type of person to make that setup look fluid. Um, and then uh, I don't remember how it finished, unfortunately. So let me go through that because the finish was like one of my favorite things about it, and sort of like saved. Oh, it was this just the one where he got uh, where it got thrown yeah. out? So Osprey won a nine away with the DQ. It moved him to two and three and dropped five to one and four. I like this better than the New Japan Cup match in some ways. Um, I just thought it was going a little bit better before the interference, like kind of grounded to a halt. And I was getting so mad when Chase like pulled the ref out. I'm like, this has to be a DQ. Like, what are you even doing at this point? And Red Shoes runs out, he counts two, and then he flips off Fowl and DQs him, which was a great finish. And I, I elevated, I gave it two and a half stars, mostly because the finish was like just so satisfying after all this folly interference crap. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely wasn't good, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't quite as bad as I was expecting, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that me leaving, uh, watching New Japan a little after the end of last G1 and then just coming back at this G1 definitely plays into how much I was sick of this in terms of, you know, uh, I'm still living in the shadow right now of those uh, really bad Bullet Club OG matches from 2018 where, uh, you know, Tama and Fale would get DQ'd every match with just the same <laughs> boring shtick. So yeah. seeing another like DQ finish like that, even if there was that level of catharsis to it, uh, just did not do anything for me. Yeah, I, I think this was the first DQ finish so far. It so, was, yeah. yeah. So that helped probably, but like, yeah, I can totally see why watching the two D ones back to back that wouldn't help. <laughs> uh, e- Evil and Zach. Evil went up to three and two with a win here in 16 minutes with the Evil. It dropped Zach to one and four, which is a little surprising. 
Um, this is a match where I, I really want to rewatch it. I I gave it three and a half. I thought it was good, but like didn't really grab me. But I didn't write a lot of notes on it, which makes me think. Mm-hmm. So I was watching this match uh, in my hotel room at Otakon and people, you know, I was in like a room with seven people and people were coming and going and stuff that maybe I just got distracted or something. Yeah. Um, but it's not a match. It's not a match I have a ton of memories on. So I'm going to give it another shot at some point if I remember to. Um, I remember liking it and just thinking it was, you know, just not didn't quite get that next level for me. I liked it. I think that um, Zach and uh, Evil have pretty good chemistry, uh, especially because two of the modes that Zach excels at are these kind of elaborate counter dances and uh, getting turned inside out uh, by a bigger guy. And Evil, as it happens, loves to do both of those. He loves to lay people out with lariats and he loves to do these very kind of like, you know, Sursa 2013 finisher counter exchanges. So I think that they're a very good match. Um, I thought that they brought a lot of that fun, big guy, little guy contrast to it. And um, I really enjoyed the the finishing sequence in this sort of, you know, like silly kind of uh, over elaborate um, way. But uh, I think there's very much a place for that. And I think that these two are uh, among the better people at delivering that type of uh, goofy spectacle. And then the semi oh, Go ahead. Yeah, it was uh, three and three quarters for me. Okay, so we're pretty close, actually. I heard a lot of other people said it was, you know, had a lot higher than I did. So I was like, well, maybe I need to go back and rewatch it. I do think Evil has had a really good tournament, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, too, with some other matches coming up. Uh, Tanahashi defeated Sonata in 1807 with the high fly flow. A little bit surprising here because it dropped Sonata one and four, which is two points, while Tanahashi was three and two at six. Um, this is a weird one. I, I, I didn't hate it. I saw some people really hated it. I thought it was a, I really liked the middle, the middle of the match. And then I thought they had a really rough patch with these skull end reversals looking awkward and bad as they sometimes do. Um, you know, I, I, you know, some people, Sonata haters would say they always do, but I would say, you know, more than usual. Um, but I still, they finished really strong. You know, I really liked the end of the match. So I put it up to three and three quarters. I can't justify going four, but I definitely didn't hate it or anything the way I saw some other people. Yeah. Um, I think I'm a little closer to being one of those haters. Um, and this is the type of match where they, it felt like they were determined to go long without necessarily having any sense of we know everything that is going to fill out that time, right? So it lasted 18 minutes, which certainly isn't the longest match in this tournament, but it did feel like there were a lot of pretty dead sequences of either, you know, uh, Sonata having Skull End half in or some, you know, pretty slow mat work. And I think that this is, if you're somebody who really hates Sonata, um, then this is absolutely the sort of match that you point to to say that like he is not exciting, he doesn't have a great sense of how to lift the crowd into things. Um, but you know, it wasn't horrible, I didn't think. Uh, I think it was, let's see, three and a quarter for me. Yeah, so we're not even that far apart, but yeah, no. uh, pretty good, pretty good match. I just think it could have, I, I was expecting better. I think they have. They, they had a better match in the New Japan Cup, and they probably have a better match in them. Uh, main event, 
two undefeated wrestlers entering here. Okada stays undefeated, beats Kenta in 2653 at the Rainmaker to go to 5 0, while Kenta loses here to go to 4 1. Um, this was really good. I think there were parts that I found very boring. So that I have to say that first of all. Uh, parts I didn't really love. But in the last like 15 minutes, I thought it got really good. And Kenta really brought the physicality, um, you know, especially with like the the double stop to the like to a draped Okada on the floor. That was like a really, really cool spot. The kicks in general, it just it, it reminded me of almost like echoes of Okada Shibata. Obviously, nowhere near as good, but you know, mm-hmm. the same kind of I just don't think Okada's had like an opponent or a rival that brings the physicality the way Kenta did here. Um I, I do think they have a better match in them someday. I think, you know, Kent is still kind of working out how to be effective in the New Japan style. And I think they probably do have a better match in them. But I still went four stars flat in this. I still liked it a lot, but I think they probably will have a better match someday. Yeah, I think I liked it uh, just a hair less. I went three and three quarters. Um, and I did feel at times like it was the type of match that deserved over four. Um but I think that when you have a 27-minute match like that, then there better be a very good reason for it. And I think that a lot of Okada's longer matches are ones where he just kind of disappears into the match for long stretches and lets his opponent do their thing, um, which can be fun. It's always good as like a showcase. I was actually watching this with somebody who... Um, you know, was pretty new to wrestling, had only seen a small handful of matches before, and she was immediately sold on Kenta as a, uh, you know, as a real killer, as a total badass. But, um, you know, despite, like, while Okada was coming out, uh, you know, she, like, noted his facial expression was like, oh, I love this smug asshole. Like, she did not have anything to say about him after the match. And I think that, that is kind of the unfortunate tendency that Okada gets tied up in, right? Of I am just going to let my opponent drive this match and, you know, get essentially a 15 minute heat section on me. And then I'll start to kick it up and, you know, do my fun drop kicks and my fun reversal sequences. So I think that if they had to work something tighter, then they could easily have a very good match. But it felt like it was missing that uh, extra spark for me, as fun as it was to see Kenta just lay into someone. Yeah, no, I hear you. So overall, a decent show, not one that's going to be in the top tier or anything. I had an average rating of three point five five on this on this show, which you know would be towards the towards the bottom, I believe. I'm going to do the whole ranking at the end, so we'll know be able to give the entire ranking, but. You know, I think any any show we have two four star matches isn't isn't bad or anything. It just compared to other G one nights isn't as good. So that then brings us to the B block show uh, from Nagoya, night number ten, which you know was kind of another show that was a very hit or miss show, as we'll go into here. This took place on July twenty eighth on Sunday. Um, it opened up first of all. I should say I was. I was spoiled on the main event. I didn't stay away from the results uh, while I was at Otakon that day, and I didn't I didn't watch the show until my train ride home, which was interesting to to know what was going to happen in the main event because obviously it was a big stunner to everybody, and uh, you know it kind of looks like 
things are playing out in a certain way now. And I guess we'll get into that when we talk about the the G1 as a whole at the end and, you know, the, the coming week. But, yeah, at the time, obviously, the result here was a big stunner. And, you know, I think you know, obviously very much surprised people. Uh, the show opened up with Hiroki Goto defeating Toriano in 142 with a Goto-style roll-up. I actually love that Goto roll-up that he does, the, the cross legs. Uh, oh, yeah. Goto to two and three and dropped Yano to two and three. Uh, yeah, this is really fun. I I mean, look, they do these matches every year where they, they, they're really, really short. And one of my favorite parts of it was the crowd just like laughing at the match time at the end. Uh, but I went two and a half. I probably could have gone higher, but yeah. I can't see going that much higher in a match that doesn't go two minutes. But it was fun. I enjoyed the minute and 42 seconds that it lasted. Go, like Yano encouraging Goto to do a, uh, a chaos chant and then just pull the shirt over his head and try to pin him. That was just awesome. Yeah, I... I thought that um, Goto as a straight man who really has Yano's number is one of the best uses for him in this tournament. Um, I loved that elaborate roll-up pinning combination finish that he had. And, you know, I do think that the running joke of Goto just taking next to no time to put Yano away every time is really funny. Uh, And, you know, I... I think that we're both of a same mind of like what the contents of this match actually are. I think I just am more inclined to give a higher star rating, three and a half in this case, to an effort that is really short, is really simple, but that left a really big smile on my face. And then the next match was Tomohiro Ishii defeating Juice Robinson in 1754 with the vertical drop Brainbuster. Ishii went to three and two and Juice dropped to three and two. Um, this one was awesome. I it took a little bit to to really grab me on a higher level. I wasn't feeling it early, but once it got going, I thought it was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, it had maybe my favorite counter of the entire year, which is when Ishii countered the pulp friction into the into that tiger suplex, which is it's one of those counters that's like made even more impressive by the fact that like when the fuck did Tomohiro Ishii ever do tiger suplexes? You know, yeah, so it's just like feels so natural when he just like catches them and like hooks those arms and hits it. It was just such a great counter. Uh, but yeah, I th- thought it was like an incredible match. Four and a half stars. Uh, really awesome. You know, obviously Ishii's having an awesome tournament, but this was still one of his better matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't like this as much as everyone else did. Um, I still thought it was quite a good match. I went three and three quarters. Um, so super enjoyed it. But I was actually surprised to hear you say that you... Um, thought it took a little while to go in because I thought that opening where it was just a series of very fast, very fired up strike exchanges was the best part of the match. I thought that after they kind of wound out of steam from that section, it um, kind of went down a notch into what was still a very good match, but that felt in a way like it could be anybody's match. Um, And I love how uh, Juice has really taken up that mantle of one of these like very fast, aggressive brawlers uh, during this tournament. So like, for example, uh, his match with Shingo is one of my favorites of the whole tournament. So to see them kind of move away from that a little into, you know, this more standard territory of, okay, well, let's put you up on the top rope and set you up for a superplex. 
Um, that's still very fun, but it did feel a little more anonymous as it wore on. So uh, still a very good match. Uh, I don't really have, you know, much actual deep criticism of it, but I was hoping for a little more. And I think that if they play into just more of that, you know, never open weight style, if you want to call it that, and just uh, have it be like a very sort of intense strike off, then I think both of them are super well suited to bring that to life. Next match was Jeff Cobb beating Tai Chi in 1230 with the Tour of the Islands. That moved Cobb to two and three and dropped Tai Chi to two and three. Uh, this was one where, again, I saw like a consensus that this was like not a very good match, which uh, I very much disagreed with. I wasn't sure where that came from. I thought it was probably the second best Cobb match behind the Ishii match. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he really played, like him playing like the powerhouse role here, really like it really worked. I thought that the match was structured really well around that. You know, I thought there was like the, the shenanigans would start were at least entertaining shenanigans. I know some people don't want shenanigans at all, but I thought it was entertaining. And then once they got in the ring, you know, I thought there was a bunch of really cool spots, like Cobb turning Taichi, like trying to lift him for the Black Mephisto into like, like straight into that really sick pile driver. That was a really awesome spot. Um, I just thought like the entire match with like Taichi, trying to outsmart this big, this big, strong dude. And like Cobb, you know, was just throwing him around every time he got his hands on him. I thought really played into Cobb's strengths in a way that very few matches in this tournament so far have played into Jeff Cobb's strengths. Uh, so I thought this was really good. I went three and three quarters, just yeah. below four stars for me. Um, yeah, I went two and three quarters, uh, but that is still well above my average rating for Jeff Cobb. So I agree that it's, you know, one of the better uses of his talents such as they are. Um, and yeah, I, I do think that Tai Chi is really fun to have in that role where he wants to be the, uh, you know, hard striker who's going toe to toe with you and doing all his uh, really stiff kicks, but, you know, is just getting really out muscled by a heroic baby face. So he has to resort to more of the shenanigans. Um, but I still think that with these kinds of matches, like, the crowd is almost never invested in Jeff Cobb unless he, you know, is in the middle of one of his most showy spots. Um, and it felt like it was just, um, you know, not the best use of Tai Chi's talents. Uh, the semifinal, Jay White defeating Shingo Takagi in 1926 with the Blade Runner that moved White to two and three and dropped Shingo to two and three. Uh, this was pretty not very good. Um, <laughs> I just remember noting 15 minutes into the match, just it, at the 15-minute call, you know, sometimes it feels like, oh, how'd they get to 15 minutes already? This one, it was like, it felt like it was 15 hours. Like, yeah. it was just so fucking boring. Um, there was, like, at one point, Jay White countered the sliding lariat, like, into the Blade Brother attempt, which felt stupid and convoluted, even on his sliding scale of mm-hmm. stupid and convoluted. Um it picked up a little bit after that, but then we got another really terrible looking counter. Uh, the Blade Runner into the Last of Dragon. It was so bad. Jay White has to stop these fucking counters. He's like out of control in this tournament. Um, I don't know. It was like, I went two and a quarter, bored me to tears. Uh, and then even the parts that started feeling good and started feeling really good even were marred by like these really terrible Blade Runner reversal spots that like Jay. It's the, pretty much that's all Jay White has brought to the table in this tournament is. You know, Blade Runner, convoluted Blade Runner reversals and, you know, Gato interference. So that's just was like 
this match is going to drag down Shingo's average because I thought it was even worse than a lot of Jay White matches. But, ugh. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think I like this a little more than you did um, in large part because I haven't seen Shingo wrestle in years. And, um, you know, mid-late 2000s Dragon Gate was one of the very first things that I watched in wrestling. And it's one of the things that really cemented my love for, uh, you know, wrestling as a as an art form. But uh, I am still going to, like, pop for any of Shingo's offense at this point. So it was two and three quarters for me, but I absolutely agree with your criticisms of Jay White. And I think this was the match where a lot of why I've been disliking his tournament so much really clicked for me, uh, despite loving his character work still. I think that he does a great job at, you know, being this, I think I'm the total mastermind and I'm going to get my shit kicked in because I'm not as clever and ruthless and evil as I think I am. Um, but the way that I put it on t- Twitter was uh, I empathize a lot with Jay White because when I was a backyarder, I also had a million dumb fucking creator wrestler moves that didn't add up to any kind of recognizable style. <laughs> and that's, that's where Jay is, right? Like he needs so desperately to get his shit in. And if you are this like, very canny, crafty, kind of, you know, cowardly heel who relies on, you know, outsmarting people and using dirty tactics, then why do you have a snap uh, flatliner into a deadlift German suplex? Why do you have a series of rolling half and half suplexes that end with one into the turnbuckle? Why do you have all these really kind of elaborate, uh, cool indie guy spots when what you're using them for most of the time is to continue to drag out a really long heat section. So, like I said, he has no idea how to structure a match, and um, that really does end up manifesting a lot of the time in him just being in control for the majority of a match as a heel, but not having any sense of what to do with that besides just, well, I'm going to do another move to you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I am grateful for this match for crystallizing very clearly why I am not feeling Jay White at all. But other than that, it wasn't very good. And it stands out in like a sore thumb given how fucking great Shingo's whole tournament has been. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The main event, John Moxley defeating Tetsuya Naito. Obviously a big shocker here. Moved Moxley to 5-0 and dropped Naito to 2-3. I think in hindsight, what we can say is we all looked at this as like, oh, what the fuck is going on? Naito has to win this. If Naito goes on to win the G1, this is going to be the match where I'm like, oh, Naito had to lose this match because he needs briefcase defenses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before this, he had lost to Yano and Taichi, two people who, you know, Yano, I don't think is going to get a briefcase shot at all. Taichi probably will, but like maybe on destruction or something. So if you need a really big briefcase defense for King of Pro Wrestling or Power Struggle, you know, obviously here's here's your guy now. This is like a really big match to do that match again. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe he still won't win, but I, but but I think people read in hindsight now read too much into Moxie winning this as like a negative, where you know he could just go on a big losing streak and Nitro could go on a big winning streak and still win, which I sort of feel like is what's going to happen. At least he's going to win the block. I mean, he he maybe still won't maybe. Jay White will break everybody's hearts in the in the the B block final, 
but this match isn't going to be the reason why, you know, he won or lost the block. As far as the match itself, I thought it was fucking awesome. Um, beginning right with Naito, like, taking 10 years to take his clothes off, and John Moxley just, like, not everybody can do the reaction to that great, but Moxley is, like, getting more and more angry and just, like, just getting more and more pissed off is great. And then Naito, like, throws the pants right at him, which is such a great spot. Um, there's this great running drop kick down the ramp, which, you know, I would like all the uh, Naito is actually paralyzed truthers out there because there's a lot of them now. And Yo, can you explain that to me? The- so, okay. So people think that Naito can barely move which I don't think makes any fucking sense if you watch him wrestle. Like, I I understand sometimes where people are like, oh, a guy's hurting. Oh, he can't really do it anymore. Tetsuya Naito's matches are, like, super fucking fast. Like, yeah. where it's, like, if his knees are completely gone, his neck's completely gone, like, you'd expect that to show up somewhere. I don't, like, even if you think Naito's not as good as I do, which I understand not everybody loves him like I do, like, objectively, I don't understand this viewpoint that, like, he's broken down now and can't go anymore. Like, it's it's not supported at all in any of his matches. He runs very quickly. Like, he, he moves very quickly. So, I don't know. It doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. But that that's out there. Dave Meltzer's pushed a lot this year, and other people have been pushing on Twitter. And I'm just like, I don't understand. Um, now, right after I tweeted that, he took out this ridiculous bump right on his neck off the headlock driver from Moxley that, like, could have paralyzed him. So I understand where, I guess, people think he must be, you know, broken down because the fucking bumps he takes in these matches. I just think he's one of these, you know, he's just, he's like, some people are just freaks, you know? Like, some people take a a lot of punishment, and clearly that's Naito. Um, But, yeah, I thought this was four and a half stars. Uh, Amazing character work by both guys. Um really nuts bumping by Naito all over the place. And, you know, Moxley, I thought, held up his end very well, even though there were some points where it felt like Naito, like, could have been bumping for, you know, Yoshihiko or something, you know? Like, it definitely was... It wasn't a one-man performance, per se, but it definitely... He was... He had more to do with this match being standing. Um, But I was glad I was spoiled on the results. I could get mad at the end, (laughs) because that probably didn't help. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it too. Um, four and a quarter uh, for me. So I think, you know, effectively the same. Uh, and I do think that, like you mentioned, this is a match where the character work was a little more important than the ring work. Um, and one kind of little mini storyline that I have loved in this tournament so far is uh, Moxley's attitudes towards clownishness. Because, you know, with that. Uh, very famous shoot interview that he gave or, you know, he made it clear that he was so done being this, you know, kind of goofy, loony comedy guy for WWE. Whenever there is a wrestler who kind of embodies any type of comedic spirit or even just, you know, uh, being able to, uh, like Naito does, just fuck with people, then it pisses Moxley off so much. And I thought that that, you know, uh, the opening sequence before the match of uh, taking a million minutes to, you know, take uh, all his clothes off and then firing them at Moxley was fantastic. Um, and I think that really informed a lot of, you know, the the passion that Moxley brought to the rest of the match. So um, I love when there can be kind of a narrative through line to a G1 like that. 
it has felt like for several people this year, there isn't anything close to one. And I do think that this sense of like uh, Moxley wanting to establish himself as this absolute killer, as this person who is not defined by, you know, the, the wacky line era of Dean Ambrose uh, and who is lashing out at anyone who reminds him in any way of that type of goofy persona. That's been one of my favorite narrative through lines at a tournament. Yeah, I mean, it's he's he's done a great job establishing like a very distinct New Japan character. It even feels distinct from what he's done in AEW so far to me too. Yeah, so I think that. So I, I mean, I not to you know I'm a, obviously have my preference of the two promotions, but he's just so much more interesting to me in New Japan than AEW so far, and we'll see if that continues or not. But I just feel like his New Japan persona is just so much more entertaining. Uh, but you know, there's a lot more. There's been a lot more of it too versus AEW. So mm-hmm. then we get to July 30th on Tuesday. Uh, oh, I should mention the average for this show was at 3.5, which was lower than. It's one of those things where like numbers can deceive you. I think because I would have put this as a higher, you know, a higher tournament night maybe than the average would even say. Like I enjoyed this night a lot, but because I had two of the matches so far down you know, two and a half and two and a quarter. It's dragging down the average, even though, you know, I thought two matches were awesome. Yeah. Uh, I liked Pop and Taichi as well, but the other two matches, I guess, were just, so, you know, so dragging that average down. This is why you always make sure to give high star ratings to Toru Yano matches. Then you won't have that problem. Exactly. Uh, night 11, Takamatsu. Uh, not a night I enjoyed. This was back on Tuesday, July 30th. Uh, I would say this was, you know, the first, night? or sorry, worst night. Yes, the the first. I would say the first flat out bad night of the G one, and definitely the worst night. Um, but it opened up with Kota Ibushi and Bad Luck Fale. Ibushi defeating Fale in nine twenty seven with the Kamigoe to move to four and two, and drop Fale to one and five. Um, I think this is my worst match of the tournament. It's definitely the. It's either this or Okada Fale. Um, it, it's close. I gave him the same rating. Um, this was definitely, I think, the most boring. I mean, look, Coda, Coda took this as a night off, which, God bless the guy. He, if anyone deserves a night off, it's probably him. Oh, yeah. But like, he didn't even do anything. And Fale was left to carry the match, which you can imagine how well that worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crowd was completely dead. It was like a long, a long chin lock, light stomping, extended bear hug. It was like a 1986 WWF house show match. Um, and then, you know, just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, there was a spot where Kota Ibushi got stuck, basically got distracted for seemingly hours, staring at Chase Owens in the corner. So Fale could do like a weak charge, uh, really terrible. They, they really should have let the finish just be Marty Asami, like kicking Fale's hands off the crucifix, you know, off the ropes into that crucifix hole. Cause that would have at least been funny finish but you know yeah. couldn't have that to redeem it instead we had just a really really terrible match i only want one star on it and that even that i think is generous yeah i think it was a star and a quarter for me just because the uh marty asami's running flying kick is one of the funniest moments <laughs> like but it says something that like I can remember exactly one moment from this match. All the spots that you mentioned there were like, oh yeah, I guess that did happen. 
But the one that I could tell you about was Marty Asami doing his flying push kick. And um, yeah, that kind of is representative of where the, where this match ended up. It was a star and a quarter for me. Um, not good at all. But like you said, you know, God bless Coda. If anybody deserves to take a night off, then it is him. And um, using Fale as your night off rather than trying to, you know, ring a good match from him somehow. That's probably your best bet. I think only one person has gotten a good match out of him all tournament. Um, and uh, you're not likely to join that club. Then we had Zack Sabre Jr. and Will Ospreay with Zack beating Ospreay in 2002 with his wacky submission with a long name I'm not going to read. Uh, moved into two and four with four points and dropped Osprey to two and four. Um, okay, so this was one of those matches where it really felt like I was watching a different match than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it got universal acclaim for the most part, where you know I saw people go as high as like four and a half. I just don't understand it at all. Um, I just didn't care for this match at all. Began with that like two choreographed like mat wrestling sequences that Zach used to do a lot in New Japan when he first came. I feel like he's gotten away from it, you know, in recent in recent like months in the past like year or so, for the most part, which is good because this stuff really annoys me. Um, and then we settled into like a really boring period that I, I don't really understand how people enjoyed this part of the match, but like it felt like Zach was occasionally working on his neck, which makes sense since Osprey has like a neck injury, but also featured like a lot of boring downtime with with Zach just like standing there, like for you know, like full seconds, just like standing there and doing nothing. I'm just like, what was entertaining about this? Um, you know, I just kept waiting for us to pick up and get good, but we got past the 10 minute mark without any real signs of it. Just like all those new Japan matches people say are you know, have a boring 10 minutes out of 30. Like, this had a really boring 10 minutes out of 20, which is half a fucking match, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, there was finally some nice striking by Zach, which then kind of devolved into, like, a really silly-looking strike exchange where nothing looked like it landed. Um, the only cool spot of the entire match probably was Zach turning the odds cutter into a choke. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Like, they finally got the crowd to wake up and make some noise after they slept through most of it, so I guess I give him credit for that. But, like, maybe a minute after I finally found it interesting, um, Zach won. So, I don't know. I mean, I went two and three quarters, which I feel like is even generous, given what I just said. Um, but a lot of the people thought it was way better. So, you know, I have to accept that was the outlier in this one. I just, I just don't get it. I just didn't <laughs> enjoy the match at all. And it's not like I haven't gotten, given high marks to other matches of both guys in this tournament, but I mean, I think Zach's had a pretty disappointing tournament, but Osprey had a pretty good one overall. I just didn't think this was one of them. Yeah, um, I thought that it was a little better than you did. I went three and a quarter on it, and I think that largely comes down to um, I have more of a tolerance and honestly more of a preference for that kind of like very uh, elaborate mat work. Um, I just think it's fun to see people like, you know, twist and flip around a whole bunch in a way that's a little more grounded than some of the, you know, Osprey high spots. Um, but other than that, yeah, I had no idea what they were going for with that extended middle sequence. Um, I think that there is this real sense on Osprey's part in this tournament of 
wanting to come across as a more mature wrestler. And so much of the time, he unfortunately interprets that as I'm just going to have these really long selling sections where nothing much happens, Um, which is a shame because like, we all know that he can do really fun high spots. And if he's got the right partner, then they can bounce off each other really well. But for him to confuse maturity with let's pad this match out for 10 minutes longer than it needs to go is very disappointing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, next match, Okada beating Lance Archer in 1415 with the Rainmaker moves him to six now and drops Archer to two and four. I kind of thought there was a chance of the upset here. I thought maybe Archer could win and do a title match for the American tour at the end of September, but you know, mm-hmm. fighting straight up page. But obviously they disagreed and they decided to keep Okada undefeated for this amount of match. Um, okay, here's what I will say about this one. I thought it was good. I went three and a half. I thought it could have been great if they hit a few spots cleaner and had a better crowd. Uh, there were like a couple spots that I thought looked really awkward. I mean, that backslide into the short arm Rainmaker Okada does, it looks really awkward on a good day. And here it looked even worse because he like he had the wrong arm at first. So like they had to like stop right in the middle of it and looked so fucking bad. Uh, I mean, I would honestly tell him to just retire that spot if he could because it never looks great. Um, you know, the best it ever looked was probably the first time he did it against Sonata in the New Japan Cup final. But most of the time it looks really bad. So, And here it looked even worse because they pretty much botched it. Um, but there was like a really cool spot where Archer, I want to say on the good side of things, where Archer countered a Rainmaker just into his own short-arm lariat, which logically that should probably happen a lot more often. I mean, it seems like a really obvious counter for the Rainmaker, but it just never, you know, it's happened twice now in this G1, but it seems like it very rarely happens otherwise. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Three and a half. I went on this. It was good. Just never quite got to great for me. Yeah. I went to uh, two and a half on this um, because I think that it really played into their, both of their worst instincts. And one thing about Okada that kind of uh, grinds my gears a little bit at this stage of his career is how much he prioritizes having these like big elaborate spots and he can make them work so less often than he attempts them. Uh, So like you said, the, you know, backslide into a uh, short arm rainmaker uh, it's not a good spot. It's certainly not a good spot to attempt with somebody whose frame is probably a little too big and difficult for you to manage into that type of uh, very precise sequence. Um, and I actually, you know, like I've been typically pretty hard on Lance Archer throughout the series, but I would actually lay a little bit more of the blame uh, for why I didn't like this match on Okada's feet. Uh, then the semifinal... Sonata beating Kenta in 16-10 with the rounding body press. Like that's a moonsault. Why do they call it that? <laughs> to go to two and four. Well, I think that's what they called it before. Um because uh, it's it's a moonsault after uh Mudo, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that him just uh if you remember like when he first came back to Japan after a stint in TNA, Muda was super pissed off about uh him uh having used the you know, great Sonata gimmick over there, um, which, you know, I think that wasn't necessarily Sonata's fault. He was put in a situation by a pretty shitty American company. But I think that as kind of a gesture to be like, 
well, I was mentored by Mudo. He means a lot to me, but I am not going to try to, you know, kind of disrespect his name or take his gimmick for my own. Um, I think that's a big part of why it's called the Rounding Body Press, which is a really weird name. But yeah. that is my uh, guess at why they call it that. But he defeated Kenta. So Kenta drops to four and two here, second straight loss. Um, this was the kind of match where I don't know what to say about it. It was aggressively fine. Uh, it, it was a little better than that, maybe, even with one major botch, uh, which was the when Kenta went for the Busiaku knee. And, you know, they I, I don't know what they were going for, but clearly the counter was not supposed to be awkwardly dropped down into a sort of, but not really guard and do nothing. So I gave it three stars, which is probably even generous. Um, it's but like, I just, you know, yeah. there wasn't much to it and it wasn't awful either other than that one awful spot. So, you know, three stars, it was fine. Yeah. It was three stars for me as well. And um, I think I brought this up uh, last time I was on his podcast last year, but I do think that, uh, Sonata really missed his calling as a comedy wrestler. Um, and I think this is one of the best matches to illustrate that unfortunate truth with, you know, he doesn't really bring a whole lot to the table against somebody whose whole persona is being a hard-nosed striker like Kenta. Um, he doesn't do good strike exchanges. He's not fast enough to really do a sort of fast guy, slow guy dichotomy. Um, and it's just kind of there, unfortunately. Yeah. Then the main event, which saved the show from being a complete disaster, Tanahashi defeating Evil in 23.02 with the high fly, high fly flow. Uh, moves him to 4-2, and two, 8 points, drops Evil to 3-3. Three and three. Uh, This was awesome. It was, you know, there were some really cool spots early on, like Evil hitting him with the German right after Tanahashi skinned the cat, which was, like, really, really cool spot. Uh, there's also like an assisted magic killer with using a young boy on the floor, which was great. Um, the crowd was so into this, especially compared to the rest of the show. Uh, there was a really great strike exchange. And, you know, by the end of it, I just thought it was an awesome match. Four and a quarter. Really enjoyed this one. Yeah. Uh, I, at the time, gave it three and a half. But I think that I can probably adjust that up to maybe like three and three quarters. Um, for me, I think that the last, let's say, five minutes or so, were fantastic, great energy. Um, you know, like you said, it really got the crowd into it after them kind of being nowhere for the whole show, understandably so. But um, I feel like it just took a little too long for them to get there. And I think that they wrestled kind of like with the clear understanding that like, look, we know we're going over 20 and we know that we both are really into these elaborate finishing sequences. So let's just kind of pace ourselves for that, which, you know, is a very understandable thing to do. Um, and I don't blame them for making that decision, but it did mean that there were, uh, you know, maybe about like 10, 15 minutes of this match where I was kind of in that, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory mindset? Yeah, no, I hear you. But overall, you know, very weak night of the G1, even even with me having that match higher than you. Yeah. It's still a two, even the, it's still 2.9 average. By far the worst show of the G1. For sure. Uh, night 12 was from Fukuoka. Uh, sort of another mixed bag of a show, but at least did have two. You know, the, the lows weren't quite as low for me, and I had two four star matches. So it wasn't awful or anything, but it definitely felt like we were in the dog days of the tournament here. 
Uh, this took place Thursday, August 1st in Fukuoka, the Citizen Gymnasium. Uh, it opened up with Jeff Cobb defeating Shingo Takagi in 12-27 with the Tour of the Islands uh, that moved Cobb to 3-3 three and three and dropped Shingo to 2-4. and four. Um, This was a pretty good match, especially on the, you know, sadly the Cobb scale, which, you know, he's one of my weaker wrestlers in this tournament. Um, I went three and a half on it. I enjoyed it. You know, it definitely could have been better, but, you know, um, they, there's like one spot by Cobb that has annoyed me because he does it over and over again. He starts like backwards to take the lariat bump before Mm -hmm actually makes contact with him at all and it's like look if this is again not i know people hate when i make these comparisons but this is fucking wwe where they are changing the camera ten thousand times anyway and nothing really makes contact half the time anyway maybe you can get away with that but this is like new japan pro wrestling they are hitting each other you cannot get them and the camera stays like in one static position because they know these people are making contact with each other so like you can't get away with doing that it just looks incredibly fake you have to fucking wait until the guy makes contact before you take the bump. So I don't know. I, I, I can't believe he's still, he, he's done that throughout the entire tournament. And like somebody needs to take him aside and tell him, Jeff, you can't start jumping before the guy makes contact. It looks fucking stupid. So anyway, um, Shingo hit, I, the only thing that was really impressive was Shingo hitting me made in Japan on him, you know, despite being such a big dude. I mean, he's done it on other big dudes before in like all Japan stuff. So I guess it's not that impressive, but it was still impressive. <laughs> I don't know. It's impressive to see a really big guy take a power move. Yeah. Um, it had a really hot little closing stretch, which, you know, got it up to three and a half for me, but never really flirted with great for me. So there you go. Um, it was also one of my better Cobb matches, but uh, I just really have not liked Cobb's tournament whatsoever. So that still means that it was three stars for me. Um and I do think that you're absolutely right about how Cobb is super awkward between his spots and going into his spots. Um, he very much looks like, uh, you know, I think the best comparison to draw for him is this sort of archetypal, uh, very talented guy in uh, from another medium, uh, like somebody who has done MMA. And obviously he had his whole amateur career, uh, but somebody who hasn't yet adjusted to pro wrestling which is wild because he's been pro wrestling for several years now. Um, but it always just feels like he's still trying to get the ropes down of, you know, really uh, making spots look natural, uh, transitioning from one spot to another. And at this point, I don't know if he's ever going to develop past that uh, real handicap of his. Yeah, I mean, it's just not... He, he might just not be that good at it. I, don't know. I mean, he had some really good matches in Ring of Honor, actually, like especially. But now in hindsight, I'm wondering, like, did, was this really four or four and a quarter? Or does it just feel like that because the rest of his Ring of Honor show is so bad? But who knows? Uh, anyway, the next match, Toriano and John Moxley. Yano defeating Moxley in 508 by countout, moving him to three and three and giving Moxley's first loss. So he's now five and one. Um, so I was bored on the next two matches. I could not wait all day at work to find out if they were just going to go lose their minds, eliminate Naito so early here. So I just asked somebody, is Naito still alive? I didn't get any details until, yes, he's still alive. So 
Obviously, I knew Moxie had to lose this, and they had to win the next one. But the way Moxie loses was still amazing, with Yano tying him to Shoto Umino, literally using his affection for this young boy against him. Incredible. Because, like, yeah, Moxie, if he had just, like, I don't know, like, just, I don't know, knocked the guy unconscious or, like, pounded on the fucking thing. But, like, he actually tried to unwrap it and, like, yeah. try to get it and like just you know d- delicately as delicately as John Moxley's gonna do anything, and then actually tried to like stagger towards the ring with him, which was just a great visual. But no, he he couldn't make it, and he got counted out. So, um, yeah, this is a quite the spectacle. I gave it three and a quarter. Um, it was really really fun match. Look, here's the thing: you said so many wonderful things about this match. <laughs> Uh, and the other matches that you've given three and a quarter to, you've said, yeah, this is just kind of there for me. Uh, it did do a whole lot. Um, but uh, what's up with that? What's up with this anti-Yano slander you've got going on? <laughs> it was a, it was three and a quarter feels like the ceiling for a five minute match. I can, but maybe that's just my biases for longer matches. Oh, uh, absolutely. I disagree on there. Like, a match going longer at this point lowers its star rating to me. And, uh, I, you know, I can think of several sprints. Like, okay, um, the two-minute match between uh, Hiromu and Kushida for the title at Sakura Genesis a couple years ago. What did you give that? I don't, I don't remember. Five stars! Probably. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the point is, uh, talking about the actual Boxleano match, um, I thought it was the funniest match of this whole tournament. Um, I was so glad to see Yano bring out more unique comedic setups because it did feel like for the first half of this tournament, he had kind of maybe run a little dry with those for the time being. Um, He needed maybe a bit of time to recoup um, and kind of go back to as well. But I thought this match was incredible. And I thought that it played so well into that storyline of Moxley just not wanting to be the clown wanting to be this like really tough angry shooter um but just being dragged down with yano into the pit of you know comedic silliness um and i thought that like you said using his affection for shoto against him and moxley just desperately trying to do like a three-man or three-legged race sock hop into the ring um and not getting nearly close enough is just such an amazing visual so uh, huge, huge fun. Uh, one of my favorite matches of the tournament. Four and a half stars. Wow. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't fault you for your, I guess your more uh, honest star rating. I don't know. I just can't. Like, I try to be like, you know, three and a quarter here can be a success. Three and yeah. a quarter here can be a failure. And three and a quarter here to me was a success, but yeah, I just kept feel like it has a ceiling on it it's really simple when a match makes me really happy it gets a really high star rating that's all okay. up next tipsia naito defeating juice robinson in 1347 with the destino uh this was a hard one to rate for me because on one hand um like i thought the character stuff was amazing i mean oh, juice yeah. juice had all of his many t-shirts when he was doing the long stripping and naito starting to get annoyed finally um but then Naito f- makes fun of like his his uh he kept making fun of his juice punch pose you know the arm thing he he stole from Moose and <laughs> that was really funny um, and then Juice paid him back by making fun of the Tranquilo pose which was also really funny so that was really cool unfortunately the match had a couple major botches um, 
You know, there was like a spinning DET on the floor that was really botched. Um, yeah. They kind of made up for that with like some really cool drop kicks. Then there was like another awkward spot where they fell off the top rope too early and had to just kind of awkwardly get back up there. Um, but then after that, there was like, you know, the really this really cool front, like uh, front flip DDT thing from Naito that he doesn't, I've never really seen him do before. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I went four stars flat. I thought that was about, that was like the highest it could, I could go given the major botches and some of the other awkwardness to it. But like, this was like, as good of a match with gigantic flaws you could have, I think. I feel you. Um, I went a little higher on it. I went four and a quarter. And I think a big part of the reason that the botches uh, sat a little better with me, first off, um, just full disclosure, is no use to answer on this, because I really like Tetsuya Naito, and I'm inclined to give his matches good star ratings. Yeah, but, I think everybody thought about me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I think that the reason that I didn't really mind those in this context um, is because there are two types of botches. And one is when it looks like somebody tried to, uh, to, to carry out a legitimate attack and just didn't get it, wasn't able to. And the other is when it looks like two people tried to plan something and the thing that they planned failed. And both of the botches here felt like they were more in that former category to me. So when he does that tornado DDT off the uh, apron uh, on the outside and he just can't actually uh, drive Juice down at a low enough angle to hit a real DDT, that is the type of botch that like, yeah, it's still a botch. It still certainly impacts my perception of the match, but it is so much more forgivable to me than the one that kind of really exposes the business in terms of, you know, uh, two people tried to choreograph something, it didn't work. And then the worst of all is when they go back to the same spot um, and try to carry out the exact same thing as if it never happened. Yes, um, which actually, as in Kenny Omega versus Chris Jericho at Double or Nothing. What's up? <laughs> I said, as in Kenny Omega versus Chris Jericho at Double or Nothing. Oh Which, my god! I've never watched an AEW match, yeah. um, and so I that, suspect somehow that I never will. <laughs> but yes, that was like the most the, the most recent like egregious example of like they completely bossed the spot and then went back and did the exact same spot. I believe it was like a one ringed angel reversal where like they just fell down and then like Kenny like picked him back up and went for the one ringed angel again so Jericho could do the reversal that they clearly had just botched, and it's like. Well, if this was real, why would that happen? Like, why would you, you know, lift the guy back up in the exact same way so the guy could go for the exact same? Like, it didn't make any fucking sense. Where yeah. at least with here, they did not repeat the spot in either case. Like, I guess they went back on the top rope, but they yeah, didn't. That's just such a broader category, you know? Like, um, there's so much more stuff that you can do on the top rope that makes it a little more believable that you would go back to that type of situation. Yeah. And on the floor, they 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 didn't even try this fang DT thing at all. They just moved on immediately, which is like to me, that was like so good. I, I even said like you could show that as like a how to move on from a botch, basically, like yeah. to a wrestling score or something, because they, they did a perfect job. Uh the semifinal. Jay White defeating Taichi in 1507 with the Blade Runner, moving into three and three and dropping Taichi to two and four. Um, you know, this started out well because I thought mutual stalling was about the only way it could have started. Um, 
And they, this is also one of the matches where the American announcers helped it because, like, when Gator went after Miho, Kevin Kelly got, like, really worked up. <laughs> like, started shouting about how he was a piece of garbage. So that was good. It made you – it got you into the match. Um, after that, like – I don't know. Like, I think I think this match would have worked better in Tokyo, where a lot of the crowd already loves Taichi, because like they went through all this stuff with Miho to try to get the crowd behind Taichi in the match and make him a babyface, and it didn't really work that well. The crowd still wasn't really that into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, when Taichi like low blowed Jay White after Jay White tried to low blow him first, and then knocked Gato off the apron and tried to pin White at the Gato Plus, that was such a cool spot. And if that had been the finish, I think it would have been perfect. But Gator recovered to pull the ref out, which was like, okay, why is this not a DQ like it was a few shows ago? So that was annoying. Um, at the end of the day, I ended up going three and a quarter. Like, there was some appeal here to the whole, like, two sleeves balls collide thing. Mm-hmm. But some really cool spots in it. But, like, I don't know, it became way too much about the seconds. And it really didn't need the fucking Blade Runner reversal dance at happy end either, which it just felt yeah. like felt even more shoehorned into this. Than it does in some Jay White matches. Yeah, I think I'm roughly in the same place as you. I went three and a half. Um, I do want to highlight a couple things that I really loved. Um, I actually thought that, regardless of the crowd reaction to him, and I did think that it you know picked up as the match went on, but I was really surprised with how well Tai Chi worked as the babyface in this match. Um, I thought that he did a great job of being the lesser of two evils and somebody who at least has a principle to him. Like, you know, like, uh, Jay White, you get the sense that he will try to protect Gato if it costs nothing to him. But the moment that, um, you know, he has any sort of calculus of it's me or him, he's just going to throw this guy aside. But Tai Chi really does care about Miho. And um, their, you know, dynamic is one of the the best recurring things uh, throughout this tournament. Um, I loved how... Uh, there was that point where Jay was uh, waiting for the stall fest to to run out. And he just kind of set up on the turnbuckles like uh, Tyler Breeze used to do. And then it cuts to Tai Chi and Miho. And Miho just like has this sweetest, most innocent smile and just like puts her uh, head in her hands like she's dozing off for a cute little nap. And <laughs> that dynamic of like, lovable rogues uh tai chi and miho even if it only is there for one match um i thought they so easily and so naturally slotted into it so i was very much impressed by that but like you said um it is a jay white match and it is a match that is subject to a lot of the same bullshit that's been dragging his whole tournament down so three and a half for me uh good match with some memorable moments but definitely did not need all the bullshit that it had I mean, and this was the match, too, where I tweeted, like, Jay White is my least favorite competitor in this tournament, which somebody was like, oh, but Fale. I'm like, least favorite is not worst. You know, Fale is clearly the worst, but Jay White, like, first of all, he's in a more prominent position. Yeah. And second of all, I just, like, I there's so many fucking matches where I'm like, I can see some potential here. You could do something here, but you just fuck it up. So, yeah. and this was another big one where I saw the potential of these two sleeves balls colliding. You know, like you said, putting over like Taichi and Miho as like a, you know, this, like you said, lovable rogues and like, you know, really getting Taichi over as a face in this match. And like, I don't, it, but, but Jay White just dragged it down again. And it mm-hmm. felt like it wasn't 
you know, no fault of anybody else involved. It just felt like it just doesn't work. So, yeah. And I, I, I think a good point of comparison between uh, like Fale and White here is that like, we all kind of expect that from Fale at this point. But Jay White, I was very, I'm very disappointed with this tournament this year because he had a maybe slightly better tournament last year. But that was also when he was in the 2018 A block, which was a really bad block. So I kind of expected that, like, okay, well, put him in with a block that's full of really good wrestlers. Um, You know, Naito, Juice, uh, Ishii, uh, Shingo, Moxley. uh, And he's going to have some great matches. But it turns out, like, what, one of those has been a good match of the ones that have so far? I have two. I have two so far. That's it. Yeah, so I, 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 there, I think two matches, same for me, that um, you've really enjoyed. And yeah. I think that the Fale stuff is a lot more forgivable when he kind of is the off night for a lot of people. He is the source of two free points. He's at, like, what, four points now, Fale? Yeah, um, four points, yeah. Yeah, and it feels like that what they're doing with him this year is to say that, like, okay, well, we're going to have him end at something like six points two years in a row, and then that's going to be the justification to just, you know, kind of quietly shoo him out of the tournament in future years after we spent so much time, like, uh, making him this monster who uh, averaged 10 points in his first few years. So I can forgive a lot more of what they're doing with Fale because there is a context to it that I can understand. Um, yeah, where exactly. Jay White is, again, somebody who has a tremendous amount of talent. I love his character work. All the the stuff that he says when he, like, uh, you know, slides out the ring at the start of a match and starts talking about how smart he is and all that, that's really fun and entertaining. It's just that the moment he is forced to do wrestling moves in any kind of order, um, he loses everything appealing about him. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously he's also just in a far more prominent position. He's probably going to be in the match that decides to block, if not, you know... I mean, it will partly decide the block. It could be the one where the winner just goes through. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a way more prominent position. The main event, Hiroki Goto defeating Tomohiro Ishii in 18-01 with the GTR. Moves Goto to 3-3 three and three and drops Ishii also to 3-3. Three and three. Um, This is a tough one for me to talk about because it's, like, it's one of these matches where I think you can... It, it's a critique. I, I have this critique for this match that a lot of the people had about Ishii and Naito where, like, I think this is this was just their generic match. Um, like I think you could close your eyes and imagine the exact match they had, which isn't a bad thing when it's these two. But I really can't go higher than four stars on a match like that. Like there was nothing that made it stand out to me. There was nothing they did that was remotely unexpected. Um, it just felt like the exact. I don't know. Felt like a computer playing out a simulation of the Ishii Goto match that would, you know, happen. So. You know, it wasn't. That's not to say it wasn't really good. It just didn't have anything special to take it above that level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what what, what range you come down on for it? Four stars. Four stars. Talking about a four star autopilot. This could be any match that they had match, and yet, Yano, where is their respect? Um, Sorry, I I will try to beg that drum a little less. uh, But, uh, spoiler, I also give a very high star rating to the last Yano match. But the point is about this, um, I agree absolutely with your sense of 
uh, this is just a match that they could have. Um, but I actually thought that it was a little worse than the kind of archetypal Goto Ishii match. Um, I thought that they worked surprisingly slowly. Um, I think that these two work best when they both are very fired up and when they're kind of ramming into each other at maximum speed with these, you know, uh, shoulder blocks where uh, either both of them stand still or one of them just gets, uh, you know, bounced back to the ropes and comes back with another shoulder block. Or when they, you know, do these like very uh, fast lariat exchanges or, you know, like other running strike exchanges. But this felt like it was a little chiller in its pace than a lot of their other matches. So I don't know. It did not do anything for me. It certainly didn't help uh, with my perceptions that Goto is having a pretty bad tournament. Um, he hasn't seemed to find a lot of that spark, except in you know rare cases like his match with Naito, where he really did look pissed off and like that you know sort of uh, very angry, fiery killer that we know he can he can be on occasion. But this was two and three quarters for me. Um, I felt like it was even a step below the match that you would uh, uh, see when you kind of close your eyes and imagine a Goto Ishii match. Mm. And overall for the night, uh, not a great night. You know, very, very middling again. I went, it's like a 3.6 average rating. So pretty good show. Uh, nothing terrible, which, you know, was better than the last few nights. Had a lot of stuff under three. But just only a couple matches of four flat and nothing above that. So, not, you know, not to standard some of the other nights of the G1. Mm-hmm. Uh, that brings us to this weekend in Osaka, uh, night 13 which was the A-block night in Osaka on August 3rd um, oh, yeah. in the Osaka, Ideon Arena, Osaka. Um, it did This whole tournament, both nights, I don't think it's a swore to say, felt like we really broke out of the, the mid-tournament malaise here with some, two really great nights here. Mm-hmm. But I think that started with the end of Osaka. Night. What were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I said this, uh, this might have been the best A-block night for me. Um, it, it think I think it was for me. Oh no, it was just below, just below some of the other ones. Yeah, yes. so but it was it was up there. Um, so it opened up with Kenta and Bad Luck Fale. Uh, Kenta beat him in seven twenty, or no, Fale beat him with seven twenty in a schoolboy. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I moved to two and five with four points and dropped Kenta to four and three with eight points. I think I see schoolboy. I'm just like, well, there has to be <laughs> a Fale. Uh, uh, Fale lost, but no, bad luck. Fale won a match with Schoolboy, folks. Uh, of course, it was a distraction roll up, which you know isn't very good. Who likes distraction finishes? But um, I didn't think it was the worst Fale match of the tournament. I thought it was perfectly fine. It's a little dull most of the way, but then I had to take points off for that finish, so yeah, I only went I went two and a quarter. Two and a quarter for me too. I think it would have been like in the roughly three star range um, without that horrible finish of like look at this point fall age just looks like the biggest joke in the world and i get that you need somebody to give people points and kind of uh make the math work like you can do with yano and b block but to have somebody who is this 350 pound super heavyweight um need to win with a schoolboy off a double distraction um, it's not even that, like, you know, he's getting this double distraction and then he's using that to, um, you know, get some kind of uh, interference blow against Kenta and then lay him out with the bad luck fall. 
it's that he's doing a schoolboy. Like you cannot take this guy seriously at all whatsoever anymore. So yeah. a quarter, um, it really feels like they're kind of done with Fale at this point. And uh, I would be surprised if we see him in next year's tournament. Uh, Cause it just feels like they're, they've kind of given up on him in this role that he had in um, the G1 uh, 2017 and earlier where, you know, he's this guy who will get a high score, will be this daunting mountain to climb and will make the math work however you need to uh, make it work. Yeah. I mean, like if it kind of feels like right now, like that, like, look, if when, when he came back to that Okada feud at the start of the year, that was like grown. Like, why are we doing this again? He's already been doing nothing. Um, they can't go back to that again. Like, come on. If we get to fucking in February and they're like, all right, it's time for another Okada Fale feud. It's going to be so fucking terrible. Do not do that again. I hope this is like the end now that that, that was the last hurrah for uh, bad luck Fale as like a major roadblock to anybody. Because mm-hmm. after when he feels like you're saying, just feels like a complete joke. Um, the second G1 match, Zack Sabre Jr. defeating Lance Archer in 10:43 with another roll-up, this time off the... It was a great counter of the, the blackout for the win. Um, so this wasn't a blow-away... Oh, it moves Zack 3 and 4, 6 points. Archer 2 and 5, 4 points. Not a blow-away match, but a good match. I went 3.5 on it. I thought it was a good big versus little match. I like I like that Lance got to do some you know technical wrestling with the arm, bar, arm ringers and arm bar counters and stuff. He was... Pretty good at it, not you know, not, definitely not terrible or anything. So I enjoyed it. Uh, just nothing that like, you know, knocked my socks off or anything. Yeah, um, I gave this four flat. Um, oh. I very much enjoyed it. I, this was my favorite Archer match of the whole tournament, and I think that they hit a rhythm that I was super into. Um, I think just Zach is really good against much bigger guys. Um, it, they kind of prevent him from getting into a lot of his bullshit. Like, oh, God, do you remember that New Japan Cup run he had in, what was it? Was it 2018? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. The New Japan Cup. That was just horrendous. And to try to book Zach as this monster who can just, you know, bend you all around the ring for 25 minutes. Oh, you're talking, sorry, you're talking about when he won the, G, won the New Japan Cup. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was. I agree. It was really bad, and it feels like nobody else agreed with us on that. Oh yeah, so. well, I, I hated that run, and I think that to build him up as this like super serious guy who is just you know going to be like a monster heel, right? Like dominating ninety percent of the matches um, is such a misapprehension of what makes him good. Zack Saber Jr. is a fundamentally silly guy. And that means that he is really good at hanging on to bigger guys like a spider monkey. He is really good at doing like six moves to you and then you lay him the fuck out with one move. So I think that he and Archer were a great pair. I love when somebody can do a bit of like mat work uh, and keep up with ZSJ for a bit and just piss him off beyond belief. Um. And I love how plainly desperate uh, Zach was throughout this match. I loved when uh, uh, Archer was in the ropes and then Zach locked in two separate submissions on him. First while he was in the ropes and then again as Archer was trying to walk back into the ring. 
Um, and so I love this idea of how Zach knew that in anything approaching a fair fight, Archer would just lay him out. Um, and so he had to be as creative and opportunistic as possible. And of course, that played into the finish super well, which again, a uh, match's finish actually connecting to the storyline of the rest of the match is something that's fairly rare in New Japan. But when uh, Archer was so confident in the sense of, oh yeah, I can just toss this guy across the ring. I can lay him completely out, knock his lights out with one move. Uh, so I can just play with my food a little bit. And that being the moment where uh, things turned on him and he got taken out with that really cool uh, blackout roll-up counter, I thought it was a fantastic way to end that match. So um, I'm starting to get why people really like Lance Archer. And I think that matches like this and a Tanahashi one are a great showcase for the parts of him that I very much enjoy. I will say, though, the one one critique I've seen other people say on Twitter and I agree with is... Um, it is kind of silly that Lance Archer is entering this match two and four, and he's still like, I don't know, super overcompetent playing with his food. It's like, buddy, you haven't been in this tournament in five years, and you're right now staring at two and five. You lose this match, and you know maybe you won't be back next year. You should maybe take this a little bit more seriously and not like be joking around so much. That's very fair, and I, I do <laughs> think that there is this kind of weirdness this year in terms of the in-ring story of people's matches being a little disconnected from their score, right? And I think that in B-Block, the example of this would be Shingo, where the commentary is just constantly putting over what how amazing he's looking, you know, what a uh, breakout this is for him and how he's going to have all the opportunities in the world after it. But, like, he's at four points. <laughs> I know. Um and so, like, I love the idea of Shingo having a great breakout and being able to compete in whatever division he wants. Um, a great way to accomplish that is to give him more victories. So yes. if you're listening, New Japan. Uh-huh. And, yeah. Uh, and after that, we have Will Ospreay and Evil. Okay. So <laughs> Evil beats 1708 with the Evil, that STO thing he does, which moves him to four and three, eight points, drops Ospreay to two and five, four points. This is like as frustrating as a match um, that I've come across this year in that I thought Evil was fucking awesome here and I really would love to reward him with a a higher rating because, again, I I just saw he looked so great tossing Will around and, you know, laying this little bastard out and, you know, just finally when he catch him, it was just like his he held up his end of this match. The problem was William Ospreay, who, you know, I've... There's a couple matches of his I really liked and I thought, I think in general... He's been better this year. But in this match, he fucking was back to doing the, like, extra goofy selling on these, like, forearm exchanges and, like, the fucking faces to the camera where, like, you know, he, he looks like such a fucking dickhead and not in a good way. Just, like, he just looks like a fucking dipshit. And, you know, they did the spot where Evil had to just kneel there for the Robinson special that, like, that spinny kick thing he does just like in that Lance Archer New Japan Cup match that a lot of other people liked a lot more than I did, which is like, I can't take your fucking fishing sequence seriously. If you're requiring a guy to just kneel on the ground for no reason with no setup, you didn't do anything to even remotely incapacitate him. He just suddenly kneels there, waits for to kick him. Like you have to set up that sequence better than that. Yeah. Cause the, the um, setup to that was that I think evil, tried to do like a German and then Will just backflipped out of it. 
but there was no sense that like evil had expended energy on that. He hadn't been hit by another move. Yeah. It's just like, it looks so fucking terrible. And I couldn't believe that people, people get like, people say that's like nitpicking, but I'm like, it looks fucking stupid. How is that nitpicking? So I don't know. It really drove me crazy. I went three and a half on it because, you know, I I thought like there were some really cool spots, like, you know, this really, really cool flip counter of the STO, which was, you know, like kind of shows you the two sides of him. Oh, is that when he does like a, a, his kind of like flip into a power bomb? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think he started doing that a whole lot since I stopped watching, and I'm a big fan of that. Um, I think that's the right kind of convoluted anime bullshit that Will Ospreay needs to be doing. But um, funnily enough, I didn't think that that Robinson special setup was the worst Osprey uh, spot setup in this match, uh, because at least it was part of an otherwise very hot finishing sequence. For me, the worst one was, uh, do you remember right after um, Will, uh, or rather Evil, got stuffed on his attempt to do the aided magic killer? Mm -hmm. And Will just comes off the ropes doing his handspring backflip kick. Um, And again, that was even less of a situation where it made any sense for Evil to get hit by that. Because at least in the Robinson special one, there was the sense that like, okay, evil has just expended some energy trying to, uh, you know, hit a move and he's ended up on his back because that's where you end up when you throw a suplex. But here it was just evil is trying to set up this move. It doesn't work. And then he just stands there perfectly still watching Will Ospreay uh, dive into the ropes and backflip off of them for like three seconds solid. And that was the one that took me out of it most. I ended up at the same place as you, three and a half stars. Uh, I also thought Evil looked amazing in his match. And I even thought that Osprey looked really good in the finishing sequence. I think that him having those really elaborate finishing sequences where kind of like uh, realistic logic breaks down and it is just this kind of, you know, we're both, uh, you know, firing at 100% and getting all our coolest moves off. That can be really fun. And... Will Ospreay often does it really fun. Um, but so much of the setup to this match uh, was right back to all this Will Ospreay bullshit that, you know, you always hope he's going to mature past and, you know, figure out how to um, become more of a well-rounded wrestler. But it does just kind of look you right in the face in matches like this. So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I saw a lot of people went a lot higher on it. So I did want to point out, you know, a lot of people like this a lot better than we did, but just, you know, I get it. I mean, if the William, like, if his fucking faces and everything doesn't annoy you as much, I can see why you're willing to go a lot higher, even if you, you know, ignore those, uh, uh, the terrible spots we just talked about. But, you know, I just can't see going any higher than like three and a half for me because I just, his, his the, the Williamness, I guess. <laughs> really came through in this match where you know i gave four and a half to some of the other matches because it didn't come through like the okada one and the abushi one it didn't come through like that but here it was just like i don't know he's been he's been very feast or famine for me in this tournament i have i have two four and a halfs a four stars against uh lance archer and then a three and three quarters but then i also have a two and a half um you know which was the match with uh i guess it was match with Fale a two and three quarters against Zach and now a three and a half against evil where you probably should have been even higher, but just, you know, yeah. especially with 
with what Evil performed in this match, but he just couldn't get up that level. Um, okay, the semifinal, Kota Ibushi defeating Hiroshi Tanahashi in 1553 with the Kamigoe in, um, to move to 5-2, 10 points, essentially eliminate Tanahashi at 4-3 and three with 8 points. Um, this was awesome. You know, I didn't, I, I liked, it, it felt like a more condensed version of their other matches. I didn't quite like it quite as much as uh, the their Power Struggle match or their G1 match last year or two years ago, whichever year it was. It was last year. Um, okay, it was last year. And I liked them doing like the, they did like a really cool Texas Cloverleaf tease early on, which is like when Tanashi got him in that. And I thought it was showed that he was like desperate to win this. Um, they were like, Ibushi, we saw Tanahashi hit that high fly, the high fly flow crossbody to the floor a bunch of times. So when Ibushi like jumped up all of a sudden out of the apron and then like leaped and hit the Rana, that was just such a cool spot, especially since we've been like so primed for the to get the crossbody to the floor. Um, there was like they did pro- that that mid air double double stomp Ibushi does. Sometimes it can look really really ridiculous. Like what was the other guy even going for? But I thought this was like the most natural it ever looked because Tanahashi had been targeting Ibushi's legs and he went for like another basement drop kick. And, you know, Ibushi just jumps to the last possible second and hits that midair double stomp. So it was great. Um, and then Koda, you know, they, they did a thing where they had the strike exchange where Koda, like, you know, suddenly looks, uh, you know, really get, gets really flustered when he gets hit in the face. Um, he went, He started going nuts for that. Uh, and then Tanahashi actually like was was, hold, was holding his own in that strike exchange. Was hitting some really brutal uh, slaps to the face before Bushi busted out that awesome charge up lariat to to put a stop to that. Um, and then of course when he he busts out the uh, Yao call and the Bame against Tanahashi, it's even more awesome than usual because of the, all the history with him and Nakamura. Um, and there was like a, a excellent roll up off the Kamigoe, which was a really great near fall that. I thought even Tanahashi could have won with that, and especially especially since he's won with so many roll ups already. Yeah. Uh, but then Kota just like he, I, the finish was like perfect. He just kicks him into goo. He hits two like two high kicks right to the side of the head. Hits the Kamigoe, definitively puts him away. You know, it's not. I, I hesitate to call it a passing on the guard because I'm sure Tanahashi will still always be around and near the top. But it definitely felt like they were saying, like, look, Koda is above Ta- Tanahashi now. He is the leader of Seki Goon. I mean, just if, or Hantai, whatever you want to call it. It just felt like they were really going out of the way to say, like, he is the guy now on the babyface side. So, you know, I thought that the finish was awesome. I loved the match. It went four and a half stars. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, I really thought that. Like you said, this idea of desperation coming out of Tana's part uh, was very palpable. And for him to, uh, you know, instead of being like this, you know, ace golden god that he's been for so many years, for him to like realize that like, oh yeah, I am outmatched this time. (laughs) I'm going to win. It will be through being the canny veteran who can do what's unexpected and, and use that like deep wall of experience. Um, I thought that was a fantastic dynamic. And also, like, I think this was the first time where I really bought Coda's G1 story this year. Um, Because, you know, they did the thing with him that they love to do of kind of start him off pretty cool and then gradually have him go on a a tear. And uh, I think it's, you know, I think fairly likely that he might win the block at this point. Um, But this was the first match where it really felt like 
oh, okay, I now fully believe in him winning the block as opposed to just, you know, kind of coasting along until he gets to the uh, finals. Um, so I thought that the fact that he, for the first time, like hit some of his really classic spots that he's been denied from having all tournament. Um, like there's that amazing uh, countering the aces high with a kind of uh, leaping up uh, super Rana back into the ring that I just thought looked absolutely gorgeous and really sold this idea of like, no, Coda has gotten over whatever funk he was in at the start of this match or at the start of this tournament. He is here and he will kick your ass and he is exactly as good as you remember him being. So four and a half stars for me, fantastic match. Um, and it really made me excited about a Coda whoever final. Um, whereas I had kind of had a little bit of reservations and had been wondering, honestly, if Coda had lost a step um, in the year that I'd uh, not been watching. And then we have the main event of the evening, which is Okada and Sonata. Sonata giving Okada his first loss, so Okada drops the 6-1, and one, and Sonata is now 3-4. and four. He beat him in 29-47 uh, with the Moonsault. So, um, I'm, I, why don't you go first on this one? Because I wonder if we're going to be very different on this match. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I... It was a four-star match for me. Okay. I thought that this is the sort of match that whether or not you go into it spoiled hugely determines how you feel about it. Um, and it is a sort of match where um, for better or worse, nothing matters except for the last minute or so. And, you know, I think that I've kind of made clear uh, by this point in the podcast that I'm very skeptical of very long matches at this point. And I think that that sense of, oh, okay, they're working very slow for the first section of this. I know what's going on. They're going to get very close to the end. Let's just kind of fast forward to there already. Um, that really marred the first, you know, honestly, like 15, 20 minutes of the match. But I really thought that that last sequence was stellar. Um, I thought that it hit it really showed Sonata's potential as a serious wrestler, which is something that I'm not very high on in most circumstances, but it was uh, an amazingly high drama set of exchanges. Um, I love the commentary kind of just, you know, pointing out like this might be the moment that he regrets most in this match where he thinks, Oh, he should have gone for, uh, you know, a cover here. He should have kept the skull end in here. Um, and I think that there was enough genuine drama to say, like, it's not obvious what happens when it hits that very fin final section. It could be that they kind of give him this moment of, oh, it was so close, and he loses at, you know, 2940. It could be that they go to a time limit draw, and it could be that they finally have him, you know, beat that demon of his and, uh, you know, take that next step. So... Um, I thought this was a really good last couple minutes that could only be that good by being the last couple minutes because they certainly wouldn't have had as much drama if that was all taking place, like, you know, at minute 20. But, um, you know, kind of the double-edged sword here is that it did mean that we had so much time of very slow, very Okada and Sonata-esque buildup uh, of just marking down time. So 
I'm very much of two minds about this match. Uh, four stars. Uh, I totally see the arguments to shoot it up even higher, but um, I think it just dragged too much in the beginning for me to really, really embrace it. See, now I'm very much on the other side. I, I went four and three quarters on this. I mean, look, this is the second time I've gone four and three quarters on Okada Sonata. I, I, I like this just a little bit below the New Japan Cup final match. And in both cases, I actually liked the opening like 10 minutes, even though it's slow and methodical. I thought they told a very effective story of, you know, Okada is not taking this man seriously. You know, I, I didn't think it was pointless and just like there to pad the time. Like I thought they told a story of Okada being on a level above and, you know, they, the way they turned the crowd too, where the crowd was not really like hundred percent behind Sonata at the start, but like by the time Okada did that one foot pin, you know, after that, that brutal DT on the floor, I thought they really got behind Sonata for the rest of the match. So I hesitate to call that first 10 minutes pointless. And I, I definitely don't think, I don't even really think it was boring. I just think it was, you know, it was, it was slower paced for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the one match others that where I did think the opening 10 to 15 minutes were bo- really boring was the wrestling Duntaku title match, which is the only one of the three like I didn't like at all. Like I went four and three quarters on this, four and three quarters in the Japan Cup final. I think I went like three and a quarter on that Duntaku match. So very extremes there between these three matches. But um, yeah, this was like, you know, you got the one foot pin, the crowd structure once Sonata, I mean, the match structure once Sonata went to that die on the floor and the crowd was going nuts for him, which was really good. Um, there was like a really great reversal sequence ending with the rope assisted magic killer. Um, and then Okada got like really fired up telling Sonata to hit him harder on the forearm exchange. Um, you know, the skull encounters, like I said, that could be very hit or miss. I thought the one where he countered where Okada countered straight into the short arm rainmaker, they got absolutely perfect. Uh, they did the, 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 the uh, rainmaker counter into a short arm Larry by the other guy again, which I think is a great spot with, the skull maker, I guess you could call it with Sonata. Um, and then like the drama down the stretch, like you said, was just amazing. You know, I was really rooting hard for Sonata here, someone that likes him in general. And like, you know, I can understand people saying, you know, it's predictable because Okada, you know, the champion starts six and zero and then loses. They've done that theme a few years in a row, but that doesn't mean they had to do it here, especially when you're in the last few minutes, you know, when you're watching, like, like someone got on me on Twitter for that, but it's like, Look, when you're watching the last few minutes, it could have been a title limit draw. Yeah, you know, that, that would not have that would not have eliminated Bushi. Bushi would have been three points back and still would have, you know, had you know has a direct match against Okada remaining. So it did not have to be an Okada, you know, a Sonata win here. So they could have done the draw. So I, I I totally disagree with this idea that there was somehow not drama down the stretch. Like that to me is like you're looking to not like it at that point. You know, maybe that's harsh, but it's like if you really have convinced yourself, especially like if you're watching spoiled, spoiled, of course you already know what's going to happen. But if you're watching it unspoiled, you know, there's no reason why they couldn't have been a time limit draw when you get down to the last 13 seconds. Um, you know, so it kind of gets the knees up, which I, I was like so angry when he did that. And by the time Sonata gets him back in the skull end, Okada's like struggling forever. And I thought the skull end didn't look horrible. And then Sonata hits those two moonsaults. I'm, you know, fist pumping by the time he finally hits that second moonsault and gets the pin. You know, any match which has me like legitimately jumping out of my seat, you know, like literally jumping up when the guy gets the pin, I'm going to have high marks for. Uh, it doesn't happen that often. So this was a really, really great match. Four and three quarters from me. Uh, at the time, became my, actually, I think it's my second best match of the tournament at this point. 
So right behind Naito and Ishii. So uh, really, really great match. Yeah. So overall this night, uh, definitely in the upper echelon here, I went with 3.7 average. You know, only dragged down really by that Fale Kenta match with everything else being, you know, at least pretty good. And then obviously, you know, these when the, when the cards came out and they had announced Tanahashi, Ibushi, and Okada Sonata back-to-back, I had those two circled. And they did not disappoint at four and a half and four and three quarters. All right, so that brings us to the last show we're going to talk about here, the other Osaka show from earlier today as we're recording this, Sunday, August 4th, which is night 14. Uh, it opened up with Juice Robin, or not Juice Robinson, Tomohiro Ishii and Toru Yano, uh, Ishii beating Yano in 9.36 with the vertical drop brain buster to move to four and three, eight points, drops out on three and four, six points. Uh, again, as the official Yano fan here, why don't you give us the big... Why don't you start with this one? I would be honored to. So um, I think I mentioned that, like, as much as I'm a big Yano fan, I gave most of his matches, uh, you know, for the first half of the tournament, maybe something like in the low three stars, like three-quarter, three-and-a-half range. Um, and I think that a big part of that was compared to last year, where he had this very unique gimmick going on of being fair play Yano all of a sudden and breaking away from that in different ways in every match. It did feel like a lot of the jokes were pretty samey in his first several matches this year. And so what happens when he busts out a joke that I haven't seen from him before uh, is I end up loving the match. And the joke here was, what would it look like if Yano just had a normal ass New Japan Pro Wrestling match? (laughs) Um, and to go for like, I mean, this was still a pretty short match, right? But it was something like nine minutes. Um, yeah, a, a little under 10. Yeah, his longest match of the tournament. Um, his longest G1 match that I remember and his longest singles match in general that I remember, um, you know, almost at any point. Um, and for him to uh, slot so uh, effortlessly into this like parody of an Ishii style, right? of having these like hard hitting fast strike exchanges, um, being so animated with all of that, throwing like a suplex here and there um, and trying to like, you know, uh, fighting spirit away the pain when Ishii headbutts him only to get headbutt again, then try to fighting spirit it away again, then get headbutt again and just collapse the floor. There were so many good moments here and it really gives me more faith that Yano does have a lot more in his comic well and that he can keep having these really fun, really unique matches that are a change of pace genuinely and not just, okay, well, let's have the same Yano match. So four and a quarter for me, absolutely fantastic. Um, Great use of Ishii's talents too. Um, I think that, you know, we've talked about like the value of the straight man in these circumstances and Ishii is one of the best. And for him to just, you know, so also naturally slot into having this hard hitting match against Yano, I thought really spoke to his versatility. And uh, yeah, just overall a treat to watch. And uh, I hope you also gave it a good rating. So before I give my rating, I want to just mention, I looked this up now because I was curious. Sure. He did have one match last year in the G1 that was longer than this one. Do you want to guess against two? Oh no. Was it his Tamatanga match? No, it was Zack Sabre Jr. Oh, that's right. It went, it went 1034. That's right. 
That was the only one, though. He had another match against uh, against Kenny Omega that went nine oh four. So that was close, uh-huh. but it was but it wasn't quite as long. And his longest match before that would have been against Davy Boy Smith in the twenty eighteen New Japan Cup. That went twelve forty five. Wow. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so this was a. Uh, I I agree. I went through. I mean, I don't. I didn't go quite as high as you did, but I went three and three quarters. Um, my favorite Yano match so far. Um, you know, a very hot start. Uh, I kind of wanted Yano to get the pin on one of those ropes because it would have been funny, but this was still better than me. Look, I give this a better rating than Osprey and Evil. So, oh, yeah, people want to get mad at me online for that. I guess they can. Yeah, I'm uh, sure to be mad at John and not at me. All my opinions are unimpeachable. Um, and definitely don't yell at me for disliking Will Osprey, a lot of people's wrestler of the year candidate. Um, as much as I do. Juice and Taichi was the next match. Taichi got the win in 1228 with the Black Mephisto, moves him to three and four, and drops Juice to three and four. Um, so I thought it was a little bit dull and interesting after some good crowd brawling, but then it really picked up after like this awesome backdrop counter of the Pulp Friction, this huge axe bomber from Taichi, uh, and then we got into all the whiskey stuff, which at least if you're going to do interference, it should at least be funny interference and oh, yeah. I did like Juice punching the whiskey out of Kanemaru's mouth and then Taichi channeling the drunk uncle of his own with his own whiskey spit for the near fall that was great and then he just hits the super kick on the black and fist for the pin um, I couldn't quite give this four but I, I still won three and three quarters I still really liked it yeah it was four for me um, I definitely agreed that it did sag in the middle but um, a lot of what I loved about the last several minutes is that you know there are these two Tai Chi's, right? There is the scumbag, uh, interference-heavy, shenanigans-heavy Tai Chi. And then there's the hard-hitting brawler Tai Chi. And this felt like the first match to really reconcile those two in a very effective way. Um, Because what would keep happening is that Juice had one mode of this hard-hitting, fiery baby face who is just going to, you know, punch you in the mouth, clothesline you, uh, use his superior size, use his heart, and just, you know, completely dominate you physically. And the way that um, Tai Chi ended up reacting to that was to switch between those two modes of his very effectively. And when one of them started failing him, he would just transition into the other uh, to keep Juice guessing and keep him on his toes. And I think that that was a great use of the fact that they're still not 100% sure where they want to like position Tai Chi going forward. But I think this was a great use of him. Uh, Juice plays off so well against these really kind of sleazy, despicable guys. Um, you know, he obviously has really great chemistry with Yana, or sorry, with um, uh, with Switchblade. I remember him having that incredible match uh, for the US title last year where at the start of it, I was just not invested at all, but they completely won me over. Um, and I think that he's the exact right baby face to put in that type of situation. So really fun match. Uh, like you said, it did have a pretty boring middle, but I, it didn't last long enough that boring section that um, it really soured me on the rest of the match. And again, Tai Chi is just a really pleasant surprise, you know? Um, and people who rate all his matches low by default are cowards. <laughs> I, I can't disagree. I can't agree with that more. I almost said disagree, which is very yeah. Funny. As a leader of Aichi Twitter, uh, <laughs> you're absolutely in a good position to give him respect. 
Goto and Cobb, the next match. I can blow right through this. It was every Goto Cobb match I've ever seen. Very generic. I uh, didn't hate it or anything. Had a good stretch run that saved it. But uh, Goto won 11 20 with the GTR. Moved to four and three. Dropped Cobb to three and four. I was nice and gave it three and a quarter. Don't even yeah. know if it deserved that. Uh, two and a quarter for me. Um, and I think that a 